Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. So as you may know, I have three young children. Our oldest, he's six, has started doing this thing where something sets him off. And he gets really frustrated, like banging his fists against the wall or yelling at us in a voice louder than I would imagine such a small being could make. And it's caught us off guard because he's usually a very sweet child. So we're trying to figure out how to help him. We've started being able to anticipate when it's beginning to happen, uh, pick up on the early warning signals, and sometimes we stumble on a seemingly random combination of things that diffuses the situation. But so far, nothing seems to consistently work. I find this frustrating, right? Why don't the things my parents did when I was a child work? Or why don't the things that I think should help work? Why don't the things that we do for his siblings work? My husband, Randy, and I spend quite a lot of our evening post-kid bedtime talking about this and strategizing things to try, but we've not yet identified how to best handle this. Uh, As a side note, advice is welcome. Anyway, this got me thinking. When we're single and kidless, all the focus is on ourself, right? We are the number one priority. We read books for fun and learn languages and take classes, do things to develop ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that I don't still do some of that today, but my focus has definitely shifted. There are three small humans in my life, and I am responsible for raising them into decent, big humans. I'm accountable for guiding and fostering their development. The same thing often also happens in a career. We start off in our first job eager to develop and perfect our own skills. Over time, this grows into wanting to help develop those around us. That's actually going to be the focus of today's episode, how we can cultivate team or organizational capabilities for effective data storytelling. Are you excited by the idea of influencing change through data? Does sharing and presenting data stories to others energize you? Do you enjoy creating effective graphs and data visualizations and would love the opportunity to teach others to do the same? Storytelling with Data has an exciting opportunity for you. Starting this month, Storytelling with Data is accepting applications for US-based data viz designers and instructors. Join a small but growing startup comprised of like-minded individuals on a mission to help others be more effective in their data storytelling. If you're interested and want to learn more, visit storytellingwithdata.com slash careers. That's storytellingwithdata.com slash careers. Apply today. So let's start off from an organizational standpoint and talk a bit about team structure when it comes to folks who are working with data, analyzing data, communicating data. So the most typical setup I see is, you know, there's some analytical team and made up of analysts. And and I use the word analyst broadly here, right? Anybody who's needing to look at or work with data on a regular basis. And typically, 
They're the ones analyzing the data. They're also the ones responsible for visualizing that data, right? Putting it into tables and graphs. And they're also the ones responsible for then communicating that data where it's, it's the full process. We've had some questions lately and actually been exposed to some different setups that I thought were pretty interesting. So Elizabeth on the team here at Storytelling with Data was at a workshop recently and somebody posed the question to her whether we're seeing organizations have roles of storyteller, right, as a storyteller, as a dedicated role. And this actually reminded me of a team setup that I learned about. It's actually when I was in Australia working with a client organization there. And so they have, it's an analytical team, and they've organized people on the team into different areas of expertise. So they have their quantitative experts and their qualitative experts and their data visualization experts and their business point of context, right? The liaisons who are the ones going out to the business, helping deliver the analytics and who are understanding the context of the business to bring back to the analytics team. And there are a couple more areas of expertise that I'm forgetting. But they would operate in sprints where for a given project, they would form a team based on the expertise needed for that project. And then they would do sprints of a week or a couple weeks, depending on what the project warranted, where that would be their sole focus, the, the project team that was formed for this, for that given amount of time. And everybody would be involved throughout the process. Their they're meeting regularly, they're brainstorming and providing feedback. And, you know, each person with their own areas of expertise was executing in that given space. And by the way, it doesn't mean they didn't have an understanding of these other spaces or skills in these other spaces, but they were uh, purposely over-indexing in a given area so that they could develop deep understanding, deep knowledge and expertise there. And it just, it seems like this really cohesive way of doing things, which is super interesting to me. And of course, in learning about this, my next question was, is it working, right? Are you, are you having success with this? Do you like it or do people like it? And they have actually only recently reorganized in this structure at the beginning of the year. So it's too soon to tell. But they did say that there have been some really interesting learnings so far from a career development standpoint. So from one aspect, they hire mainly people straight out of university. And so new people come in and they are on these project teams as well. And so they often end up doing some of the grunt work, right? The data gathering, cleaning and such. But through being on these project teams, they're also getting exposed to all of the different parts of the process and areas of expertise so that over time they can figure out which path they may want to pursue and start learning more about. And then when you think of it from a, a mentorship guidance standpoint, right, you've got these experienced people who you can pair your newer people with from an apprenticeship standpoint. So the learning there can be fantastic. Also beyond that, thinking about people who are further into their career, it gives them other paths to be able to switch to if they decide they want to develop new skills or uh, align their area of expertise against something else, right, as they continue to advance in their career. And so I thought all of that was very interesting, and I will absolutely check back in with the organization after some more time has passed to, to see whether they are happy with this structure. So this has me curious. Whether you may be part of or aware of other more novel analytical team setups. If so, I'd love to hear about it. And please share by emailing me at feedback at storytellingwithdata.com. And certainly we'll find ways to share back what we learned through that process with everybody listening here. 
Another team setup I've seen, and this has been mainly in the pharmaceutical industry, medical research, is where you have a team of highly technical folks, right? Typically statisticians, biostatisticians, uh, data scientists who are doing the analyses. And then they will write a white paper to summarize the results of what they've done. And then that white paper gets passed on to the marketing team, who then uses that to make the information more consumable, digestible, create marketing materials and such. And so I I think that setup probably works well there. There may be some other uh, use cases for a setup like that. However, I'm hesitant in general to recommend this uh, throw it over the fence approach where it's the teams doing the analysis and communicating are separate completely. Because I think it's very important that the people communicating the information understand what was done in the analysis process and that the people doing the analytics are involved in the communication. Just think having there be cohesion there means uh, fewer opportunities for uh, mistakes or misinterpretations and such. Now that said, I think there are absolutely opportunities to pair complementary skill sets where you take somebody highly technical and somebody who's stronger on the communication side and you pair them together think there can be tremendous value in upskilling there from both sides that can be beneficial. But as I talked about, mainly it's part of the analyst's job, right, to communicate the data, to be visualizing the data, helping others understand what's happened. So let's talk about that some more. First, from the manager's perspective of what you can do to help cultivate a culture that leads to effective visualization and communication with data. And I say this is targeted at managers, but this will definitely also be relevant for those who are not in formal managerial roles, right? Anybody who wants to influence those around them. So I think first off, you need to see the value in effectively visualizing data, effectively communicating that data. And I imagine by virtue of listening here, you probably already do. So maybe uh, the next most important thing is that they, right, the people whose skills you're trying to embed uh, that they see the value in it. I find there's sometimes the feeling uh, among folks coming from a, a highly quantitative background that the communication piece is fluffy, right? That eh, I don't need to spend my time there. I'm spending my time on the hardcore analytics. When really, yes, you need to be able to do the technical aspect of things. But if you can't clearly talk about what you've done to someone else or create a graph that they're going to be able to understand or put words around that that makes sense, then all of that highly technical quantitative work is for nothing. It won't ever drive the understanding or the impact that you want it to, or it'll be much harder to do so. And I am a strong believer that there is an incredible amount of value to be obtained by work that is already being done, that just isn't being communicated as effectively as it could be. And communication is not a fluffy thing, right? You can be highly strategic and technical in how you form your communications and how you uh, plot for success, right? And how you take your audience's needs and your needs and look for ways to combine those in ways that will be successful for both you and for them. 
But I think in general, if you're finding yourself met with resistance, right, you think people should pay more attention to how they visualize their data or spend more time planning their communications and you're finding that people resist this, you want to step back and isolate why. Right? What's at the root of that? And how can you address that? Or how do you frame what you need people to do in terms of what's important to them? Right? What's the value proposition that will help them want to invest in skills and get better? If you're in a manager role, making the communication piece, the visualization piece, an expected part of the role can be a useful thing to do. But then you also need to invest in skills, right, broadly so that everyone has a common understanding of what good looks like. And then one approach I'll often recommend is this sort of two-pronged approach, where one is you, you invest in everybody, right? You create a baseline for what good good looks like. You create a common language for people to use to give feedback to each other or to help evaluate their own work. You get everybody on the same page, talking the same language. And then the second prong is you identify a person or two and you tap them to be your internal data viz or data storytelling experts. Right? And these should be people who have shown some natural proclivity in this space, right? They, they spend some time with this. They have some skills already, ideally people who also are interested in this space. And then you invest in them. You give them time to practice and read blogs and go to training where that might make sense. This can be great from a couple of standpoints. One, it creates internal experts that your team can go to when they're feeling stuck or need someone to brainstorm with or are looking for innovative solutions. And then secondly, it can be a nice sort of career development for the individuals. So it's one potential approach. Another thing that is really important when it comes to helping people on your teams get better at visualizing data and communicating with data is help people make time for it. Or if you're an individual wanting to improve your own skills, making sure you carve out time for this part of the process. And this has always been very interesting for me because if we step back and think about the totality of the typical analytical process, you may start off with a hypothesis or a question. Then you gather the data, you clean the data, you analyze the data. And at that point, we're often out of time. So we throw it in a graph, maybe outline some findings and shoot it off to our audience. That graph, right, that final step is the only part of the whole process that your audience ever sees. So my belief is it deserves at least as much time and attention as all the other parts of the process. But oftentimes we don't make the time for that. And so making sure you are carving out time to iterate through different views of the data and look at things from different standpoints and get feedback from others, which we'll talk more about in a few minutes. And, and just practicing, right? So encourage people to practice, to spend more time than they think they should iterating through different views of the data. Because different views of the data allow us to see different things. And so it takes going through that iterative process to figure out both what's going on in the data and then secondly, how you might best visualize that to communicate your interesting findings to someone else. And I think encouraging people to try new things. It's a way to keep things fresh and learn. 
and I think that is applicable both in the data visualization piece of the process as well in how you're presenting, right? How you're leading people through a story. You can play in these spaces and learn from the different tactics that you try of what works and what works less well so that over time you can do more of what works and less of what doesn't work. Now, certainly try this out in low-risk places first and learn and iterate from there. Important in this process, especially if you're trying something new or more novel, but in general, is feedback, right? Providing opportunities for people to give and receive feedback, making feedback a part of your culture, which sounds like a relatively easy thing to do, but it's actually really hard. And we're often pretty bad at soliciting and giving feedback. Because when you step back and think about it, it's actually a really vulnerable position you put yourself in when you ask for feedback, right? You create something and you put it out there and sort of open it up for potential attack. <laughs> Irrespective of how friendly people are coming back with that, it's hard sometimes not to take it personally. Now, there are some areas that do this well. Critique feedback is something in for designers in the design process is built in, right? It's built into their curriculum in university. So they learn this and learn to separate their feelings from the product or the, the thing that they're designing and end up building better products as a result of the effective feedback that they get. When it comes to feedback on data visualization, it just it hasn't been ingrained historically in the same way. But I think we can certainly start to change that. And part of what you can think about doing is, you know, try to separate the person from it as much as you can. Focus on not just the what, right? What do you think should be changed or what are you suggesting, but the why. Right? Not what doesn't work, but what could be better and why do you think that would make it better? Right? What would the outcome of that be or what's the underlying principle that you're drawing on to create that? So you know, we don't say, I don't like how you're using colors here. We say things like, have you thought about using color more pointedly or something similar? Where you can start conversations that help you understand what was in the person's head and why they made some of the decisions they made. Because right? it's really easy to critique without that when oftentimes people are working within constraints that we're not aware of when we're giving them feedback. So when giving, receiving feedback, you really want to understand what feedback is needed, what are the constraints the person is facing, and then within those things, you know, what kind of feedback they're looking for. Actually, there's really interesting... Uh, Simon Beaumont at JLL has started doing something with his team. Uh, they've been doing it for a while now that has been helping them foster a culture of giving each other feedback. And they've actually been taking the Storytelling with Data Challenge. They don't participate. It's not the live one. They go through the archives of the Storytelling with Data Challenge. You can learn more about this on the website. I'll make sure to include in the show links as well. And they pick a past challenge. So they say, okay, this month we're going to visualize annotated line graphs. So we're going to make an annotated line graph. And they go, they get their data, right? Non-work data. This is just data of interest uh, for each individual. And they each create their visual. They have a, a week or two to do this. And then they share them all. And they get together. Uh, they're non-co-located. So they, they have a webinar or a VC later in the month where each person presents what they've done and everybody gives them feedback. 
In chatting with Simon, he and I were actually both in Australia last month, he said there's been some really interesting learnings from doing this process. And part of it's because it's not work-related, right? These are not work topics. These are, you know, people visualizing things about sports or music or other things that might be of interest to them. That it's lower risk and people are less personally attached in the way that they might be to a work project in a way that means nobody's getting offended, right? People are having fun with this. They're practicing giving feedback. And more importantly, he's seeing this manifest in people being more open to giving and receiving feedback outside of this process. So it's this really interesting idea of doing something fun, non-work related, starting to get people giving feedback there can actually help cultivate more feedback, better feedback in the day-to-day work environment. So that, that was a really cool example of how you can make critique part of the norm, right? So it's just an expected part of the process and people take their personal attachment to their work out of it because it's through getting feedback that they can actually make the work that they're doing more effective. Actually, on the topic of critique, Amy Cecil recently shared an article through the Data Visualization Society Slack. And it's by Booty Tanrim, and I apologize, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. The article was called A Framework to Give Better Design Feedback, Analyze, Discuss, Suggest. In the article, they go through these different parts of the process, right? Analyze, discuss, suggest, talk about what you as a person critiquing should be doing and thinking about. One thing I thought was interesting, and I'll make sure to link to the full article in the show notes, but they talk about the proportions of these things, right? If you're spending 20% of your time analyzing, 10% discussing, and 70% suggesting, that's probably a destructive combination. Whereas if you're spending something like 30% of your time analyzing, 60% discussing, and 10% suggesting, that that's probably more balanced. And so I thought it was an interesting way to think about things and an interesting framework to think through when it comes to sharing feedback or soliciting feedback from those around us. Another place to be thoughtful when it comes to feedback is, you know, one, it's very important to seek it throughout the process and as you're developing something, but also after the fact, right, to pause and reflect, right? You just finished your data visualization and it's been sent off into the wild, or you've just presented your data in a meeting or in another presentation, to then take some time to pause and reflect and think about what worked well, right, what was effective where were their surprises, what maybe didn't go well that you could learn from and iterate on next time, or where might it have been helpful to get feedback earlier in the process if if unexpected things come up, and really being thoughtful about debriefing post hoc. And I think this, from a manager standpoint, is something else to try to make part of the norm as another way of sharing successes, sharing failures, right? Because we can learn through both of those things. And it's through sharing these stories that we create cohesiveness across our team. We help further build this common understanding of what good looks like. And we share things that can be used by others in a way that can be effective. 
Another important part of helping cultivate or enhance skills when it comes to visualizing data or communicating with data is to set goals around these things, right? Typically, organizations have regular goal-setting processes. So as a manager, ensuring that individuals on your team have goals set around this, and as an individual, making sure you're setting goals around this, getting your manager's buy-in, can be a way of helping hold us accountable. Right? There's something about when you've made a goal, you've articulated it, you've put it out there, someone else has read it or is aware of it that makes us feel like we have to achieve it. So thinking about what goals you could set for yourselves or what goals you could help others set that would help there be increased focus on developing skills in this area. And actually, episode 13 of the podcast is all about goal setting. It's called Goals Like Google, where I talk through the OKR the goal setting process that's used at Google, how I use that currently at Storytelling with Data. Another thing to be thinking about when it comes to helping those around you develop their data visualization and communication skills is making sure that they have tools that will enable them to do this. And it's not about having a specific tool. I've said this a lot, but there is no magic tool out there that makes all of this easy. Uh, it's about picking a tool or a set of tools and helping folks get to know how to use those tools uh, so that they don't become limiting factors when it comes to effectively visualizing your data, communicating with your data. And it doesn't take fancy tools to do this well. Um, you know, Some people will have proclivities towards different sorts of tools. Uh, Google was sort of an interesting setup when it came to this because the team I worked on at Google, we were encouraged to use whatever tool we want, uh, which is sort of a double-edged sword. Uh, it can be a great thing for the individual, right? Because you're not forced to learn something new necessarily. You can work in whatever you're comfortable with. And so we had people using SPSS, SAS, R, um, other stats packages uh, that I'm forgetting the names of, uh, a whole host of things. Uh but can be not ideal from the standpoint of if you need somebody else to jump in on a project or you know someone leaves your organization and someone else needs to take on that work, now you've created this barrier. Um, so things to think about. And also it's not realistic uh, always for uh, teams to be using so many tools, right? Because there's obviously a cost associated with that. Uh, but you don't need fancy tools to do this well. You do need to learn how to use your tools well enough. And so figuring out what support to give folks to be able to get good uh, or become uh, fluent in the visualization and communication tools that they're using is a really important thing. And that can be, you know, resources, trainings, although I'm not a huge proponent of trainings when it comes to tools, because I think the best way to get to use it, to get to learn a tool I think the best way to learn a tool is to use it and to practice and to beat your head into a wall and do some smart Google searching and uh, consult colleagues who maybe know it better than you uh, until you can get uh, good enough at it to do what you need and recognizing that that gets faster and you'll become more nuanced in the things that you can do over time. And actually, this brings me to a question that has come up lately, which is how do some of these things differ in a small team, right? We've got one or two people and it means you may not have 
so many people there to give each other feedback. You may not have the resources to do some of the things that we've talked about. You have to get much more creative in how you get support. Uh, so some thoughts there. One, you can think about leveraging expertise from other areas of the organization. Uh, so my husband actually has a good example of this. So he used to run HR at a company in San Francisco. And at one point early on, he was looking to hire a people analyst, but was having a hard time finding the right combination of skills and getting the applicants uh, to be able to fill that role. And so he got really creative in his sourcing and actually looked to rejected candidates to financial analysts to finance roles who he figured would have the right sort of technical skill set that he needed. They wouldn't necessarily have the HR or likely wouldn't have the HR experience, but he could pair them up with HR business partners and have them learn that on the job. And so he actually was able to hire someone who'd previously applied for another role at the company in another part of the company and get the skills that he needed. And for the person, it was fantastic, right? Because they had been overlooked the first time around or didn't meet the needs there, but then were able to fill a need here. And so in a small team, you have to get creative in where you look. There may be cross-functional overlap that you can use to pair people up and help develop or enhance skills that way. In some cases, you may have to look externally for mentorship or guidance. And that's where relying on your network or having the people on your team rely on their network to get some of that. There's also a ton of free stuff out there, right? So if you're small and you're constrained by budget, that doesn't mean you can't really develop skills in this area. Look for blogs, videos, and the like. Also, if you happen to be interviewing, if you have open roles, this can be an excellent way to actually get some information as well. Right? You think about uh, candidates who come in to interview. You may ask questions like, you know, what blogs do you follow? What, what are you reading right now? Where do you look for uh, when you're learning? And can be both a good way of understanding how people are keeping up with what's going on and how uh, passionate they are or how much they're developing themselves, but then may also yield some good tips or resources for you to use across your organization. So if you're a small analytical team, uh, you have to be scrappier, but there are still a ton of ways to learn and develop. And actually, on the topic of learning and developing, I'm working on a project right now that I'm super excited about. Uh, you may have seen on Twitter recently, but I uh, happily announced that I have signed the contract with my publisher for uh, my second book, which is very exciting. It's been a long time coming. And it's almost done, or I should say the manuscript is almost completely drafted, uh, which is going to be a huge relief for me because it's been quite a long time and quite a lot of work. But it's going to be a practice book that will follow the same general structure as the original book, but much more focused on practice, where each chapter is going to have three sections of exercises. There'll be practice with Cole, where I pose an exercise or a case study that you're meant to work through on your own, but then I also work through my illustration of it and share with you as a way of sharing many more examples and guided thought process and tips and tricks. The second section of exercises within each chapter will be practice on your own. 
where it'll be similar exercises and case studies posed, but without prescribed solutions. So these will be great for the individual who wants more practice, uh, for university instructors who are teaching and want to be able to grab exercises or assignments to use or modify for use with their students, for managers looking to uh, enhance skills of those on their team. I think about assigning these, having people get together, talk about them. Then the final section of exercises within each chapter is practice at work, where you take a project you are facing currently in your day-to-day and can pick different exercises that are going to be relevant to it or useful for the challenges you're facing or the areas you want to further develop. And you're coached step-by-step through how do you think about this? How do you iterate? How and when and who do you ask for feedback and such? And so my hope is that this will be a fantastic resource for anyone who needs to communicate with data, anybody working with numbers, uh, anybody needing to tell a story with those numbers, and should be an excellent companion resource to the original book as well. So stay tuned for more on that. Uh, Publication should be later this year. So we've talked about enhancing skills from an organizational team structure standpoint. We've talked about what managers can do to help enhance the skills of their team. And again, a lot of this applied to individuals as well. But let's talk about a couple more things from an individual standpoint that I think can be helpful when it comes to influencing those around you in terms of motivating them to want to embedder their skills when it comes to visualizing and communicating with data. So I think my number one recommendation in this space is model good behavior through your own work, right? Put good stuff out there. People will gravitate towards that. And what you'll find is small successes over time lead to building your credibility in a way that others will start to look to you and look to your work and want to emulate it. Actually, on the topic of emulating, the current Storytelling with Data challenge focuses on that, where Elizabeth uh, takes inspiration from Austin Kleon's Steal Like an Artist, and you're meant to select a data visualization that someone else has created and copy it. Not about plagiarizing, but creating an honorable copy as a way of practicing and further honing your skills and style. So that challenge runs through April 10th, 2019, and more details are on the website at storytellingwithdata.com. So putting out work that other people will want to model their own after. You may find also that people start coming to you for feedback. They'll say, Another thing to do to help improve the skills of those around you is ask for their feedback. The conversations that ensue from that can help raise the skills and the thoughtfulness of everybody. And what you find is when you ask others for feedback, they're more willing to later come to you for feedback in the future. And again, going back to this idea of cultivating a culture of feedback, the more you can make that a part of the process and a part of everyone's process, the more that can turn into raising the boat when it comes to everybody's skill level over time time. And I'd say if you're passionate about data visualization and effective communication with data, share your tips, right? And share them openly without expecting anything in return. But avoid being preachy 
or authoritative when you do so, or talking about things as if there is a right and a wrong. Rarely is that the case. So being open, but being thoughtful in how you share your tips with others. And as I mentioned before, when you're met with resistance, right, when you think other people around you should want to change or improve the way that they visualize or the way that they communicate with data, and and you will be met with resistance. We all are at times, and I know it's frustrating, but try to view it as a puzzle. Identify the components of the resistance and take them apart. Then think about the pieces of solutions that can address those components and how you might put it all back together in a way that works for everyone. This takes work, it takes thought and time, but if it were easy, it wouldn't be as much fun, right? We wouldn't be learning and growing. And actually, thinking back to my son, it's probably a good way to think about being a parent, too. I hope you appreciate these tips and can put them to use. If you have others to share, things you or your team are doing that are working well for building broad data storytelling capabilities, I'd love to hear about it. You can email your success or failure, and we learn a lot from that too, stories to feedback at storytellingwithdata.com. Let's shift next to reader Q&A. Manaza from London writes, I have a question about tools for data viz beginners. As part of my job, I'm helping to introduce a data literacy program in our department, which also involves encouraging people to use more visualizations as part of their work. Currently, most people use Excel to make pie charts, and in the rare case of bar chart. So I'm essentially helping them become become more visualization savvy. The plan is to train them in Tableau, since it can handle a lot more and is what my team has to work with. However, I feel that Tableau can be a bit time-consuming to learn for people who are specialists in other areas. So learning a new tool for something that makes up a small area of their work might be overkill. The feedback I get from people in my team who've tried out Tableau is that they can get what they need, simple charts, from Excel much faster and in fewer steps. What do you think are some of the best tools for making simple charts, which people can use to learn quickly and easily, but are also less fiddly than Excel and Tableau? Are there any? Any other thoughts on introducing some basic visualization literacy would be welcome. So in my experience, and I mentioned this earlier, there's no magical tool out there that makes all of this super easy. This is because any tool is trying to meet the needs of so many different scenarios that it's rarely going to meet any of those exactly in a default setting. And so I said this before, but pick a tool or a set of tools, get to learn them as best you can so they don't become limiting when it comes to creating effective data visualization. For those in your org, in the specific instance, this may mean meeting them at the tool in which they're most comfortable. And it sounds like in this case, that might be Excel. I think if you push for people to use something new or unfamiliar, you'd really want to think through the benefits and consider the value for them and how you might convince them that they should want to spend the time or energy and make sure that that's a worthwhile trade-off. In Excel, if if folks are using a recent version, there is the recommended charts feature that you may make them aware of uh, if they aren't already. Just be aware that these are recommended strictly based on the layout of the data. They don't take any context into account. So it's very possible that a chart can be recommended that actually is not well suited for this scenario. So you still have to apply a scrutinizing lens there. But it can be a nice way to quickly see different views of the data without creating a graph from scratch each time, which may help ease (laughs) people away from pies. Uh, Another low barrier to entry tool is Google Spreadsheets, which has come a long way, but still has some limitations when it comes to the design aspect. 
Some newer ones that we've started playing with at Storytelling with Data are Flourish and Data Wrapper. There are components of each of these that are really nice, but there is a switching cost or a learning curve associated with using any new tool. So again, weighing the cost, uh, both in terms of actual cost, but then also in terms of people's willingness and time versus the benefit that they're going to get out of learning and using a new tool is always going to be important. I think on the improving visual literacy topic, this is super interesting for me. And it's uh, an idea, a question that's come up several times recently that I, I still don't feel like I have a great response to. Uh, Alberto Cairo has a new book coming out in the fall. I actually just saw, I think it was yesterday or the day before, his pre-orders are available. I can link to that in the show notes as well. It's meant to address this, but I think there's still the challenge of convincing people why they should want to increase their visual literacy. So we, yeah, we'll have to work to keep figuring out how to solve that. I think in any case, if you come across good resources in this area or try out things that work, I'd love to hear about it. Phil writes, when should I even be creating a chart as opposed to just relaying my message through words, writing an email or talking with someone? I love this question. It's simple and yet something to which we don't often give due thought. Just because you have data does not mean you need a graph. Sometimes words will do the job more effectively or with more impact than a graph can do. When it comes to the question of when to use a graph, you wanna think about how important the data is. Also, how critical is it that the audience see that data? Is there something about the shape of the data that's interesting? or different things interacting together, the graph really enables people to easily see. Because when we take data and we make it visual, we make it accessible and understandable in totally new ways. There are also some memory benefits to using words and data together. When I tell you my point in words, and I also show you an illustration of that point in data, a graph, not only can you remember what you heard or read, but also what you saw. Also, definitely keeping your audience in mind when the question is, do I show the data or not? If they are technical and you can anticipate they'll want to see the data, show it to them. Or if they are going to need the data, be convinced of something, don't undermine your work or message by not showing data when showing data would be warranted. So always ask yourself whether you need the data, but consider also how you can use words and data together in powerful ways. Laura writes, I've read your book, listened to your first three podcasts, been reading your blog, and have participated in one of the monthly Storytelling with Data challenges. I first learned about Storytelling with Data when I stumbled upon your book earlier this year. I instantly fell in love with the idea and have been reading everything and anything since. One piece I'm still struggling with is finding avenues for feedback. I am a semi-data analyst, and I've been able to convince my boss to allow me to use storytelling in a variety of my projects. My boss has been a great support, but as I cannot share data outside of our two-person team, I'm limited as to who I can get feedback from. I'm currently working to practice my data storytelling skills through other avenues, such as Makeover Monday and your storytelling with data challenges. Getting feedback has still been rather limited as Makeover Monday is quite competitive and my friends and family can only contribute so much. All of this to say, I would really appreciate two things. One, storytelling with data challenges include a form of feedback. I realize you and your team have limited time. Some suggestions, pick your favorites and why, or randomly select a certain number of visualizations to give private or public feedback to. Two, other ideas you may have. 
I'm new to this seven to eight months in. Any other suggestions you have would be amazing. While practice is key, I do believe that feedback is essential. Thanks for reaching out, Laura, and I'm very happy to hear you're finding our materials helpful. Yes, you are absolutely correct that getting feedback is key, as we've talked about in the episode today. We're actually working on something that will address the Storytelling with Data Challenge feedback piece, so stay tuned for more on that. Uh, Elizabeth and I, in the meantime, do try to highlight some of our favorites in the recap each month, but as you can imagine, just the process of pulling everything together takes a ton of time, so we don't have a lot of bandwidth for feedback on top of that. It's one of the reasons we're working on ways to get this to happen across the broader community. I do see some of that happening on Twitter, so if you post there and ask for feedback, you may get some tips. I do also try to respond to each of the submissions posted there with some of my thoughts. To your more specific question on getting feedback in general for your small team and sensitive data, definitely use your colleague or manager. There may also be cases where you can redact sensitive details so that you can talk it through it with someone else. And even just the process of talking out loud through a visual can be helpful and sometimes highlight areas for continued iteration. Uh, If you're finding something difficult to explain, that's going to be a good pointer that you might want to think through that more or look at it in a different way. Uh, As a way of flipping this around, critiquing other people's work, practicing giving feedback can actually be a great way to learn. So when you see a graph from a colleague in the media as part of the Storytelling with Data Challenge, pause and consider what's effective about it that you might emulate in your own work or what's less than ideal about it. How do you avoid similar issues in your own work? This way, you generate feedback for others, whether you actually share it with them or not, and then can be thoughtful about incorporating that same feedback into your own designs. Also, if you are presenting live to your audiences, watch them. There is a microsecond when you put something in front of someone before they censor their facial responses. So if you see any scrunched up faces, furrowed brows, pursed lips, these can be micro cues that something isn't working. And you may want to change how you talk through that or how you design the data in the future. Just some quick thoughts, but hopefully you'll find something useful here. It's a learning process, and this often means trying things out and learning over time what works and what doesn't. Each scenario is a little different, which also complicates things. But as I said earlier, if it were easy, it wouldn't be so much fun, right? Big thanks to everyone who submitted questions. If you have a question, you can email it to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. Before we wrap, just a couple of quick announcements today. I am extremely excited to announce that we are hiring at Storytelling with Data. We're looking for US-based data visualization designers and instructors. If you're passionate about data, communicating it effectively, and helping others do so, please consider applying. Full job description and application details can be found at storytellingwithdata.com careers. There are just a handful of public storytelling with data workshops left for the remainder of the year. In the U.S., we have just a couple open spots in Milwaukee on May 2nd, and we'll soon be opening up registration for our only fall public workshop, which will be in Chicago. We'll announce more details on that as soon as we have them set. Uh, There is still space available in Dublin, Copenhagen, and Zurich. Those will all take place in June. Full details at storytellingwithdata.com slash public dash workshops. With that, if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with a friend. Be sure to follow at Story with Data on Twitter and Instagram. Also check out all the great resources on the blog at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks for listening.